Romans chapter number 5. I want to read the first 11 verses. I want to try to put an emphasis on a particular word in Romans chapter 5. It's found 12 times in these 11 verses, which is quite a bit. And I want you to pay extra close attention to the Word of God. Beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want You to bless Your Word, Father. I know you've made a promise to bless your word. And I want to ask, Lord, that you get the glory out of all that's said and done this evening. Father, I pray you'd open our hearts and make real to us the truths of your word. And that your Holy Spirit would have liberty to convict and correct us. Lord, and to change us for your glory and honor. We love you tonight, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you picked up as I read, I'm sure that you did, but in the book of Romans, chapter number 5, in the first 11 verses, really in the entire chapter, but they're all found within the first 11 verses, you'll find the word we found 12 times. A little word, W-E, and we're familiar with it, it has the idea of uh, collectiveness. Uh, not just me and not just you, but we, us, together. It embodies the idea of a group of people. That group can be a small group or it can be a large group. But it's never just a singular idea when you use the term we. It's a personal idea. If I wanted to use a collective idea that was non-personal, I'd say they. You can say that about some people. You might say they are out there. Or how many of you said this? They are crazy. Amen. (laughs) I don't know who they are, but they're always crazy. It don't matter how you're talking about. You say them people are crazy. But when we say we, we are including ourselves within this category. We are identifying ourselves with a group of people. Twelve times, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter number five, he identifies himself with a group of people. Now, can I say to you that the Word of God is the love letter from God to you and I? Can I propose to you that the Word of God is as real to you and as real to me as it was to those who were contemporary with its writing? Can I say to you that the application is just as valid to you and I? Though there may be a historical context, we can all draw something from the Word of God. And you might believe differently than I do about this. But I believe when Paul says we, I believe he's talking about Toby Weber. Right there with Paul the Apostle. 
I believe he's talking about you and you could insert your name in here as Paul writes these things that you and I are included in this we if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. And so tonight I just want to walk through these 12 different we's. I kind of uh, joked and laughed. I looked at Melissa I said, I got a 12 point outline in a new Bible tonight. She said, I may leave early. Amen. But I'm just going to try to hit on them tonight, each one of them, and not just spend a lot of time on any of them. I find as I study these 12 different uses of the word we, that they basically divide themselves into four categories. And could I say that we have presented to us what we were, you and I both. What we were in the eyes of God, and what we were in reality, regardless of our perceptions of ourselves, we have the absolute pure and unadulterated opinion of God as to you and I. And can I say as we read this, we learn of what we have if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Can I say when God saved you, He gave you some things? I mean, He changed your life, and He made you rich in the riches of Jesus Christ. Can I say we see a couple of things that we shall be? I'm thankful that what I am is not what I'm always going to be. And I'm thankful that, uh, beloved, now are we the sons of God. But I'm thankful it doth not yet appear what we shall be. There's some things in our lives that are going to change when the Lord comes back. And I'm thankful for that. But I say that it also presents to us some things that you and I, that we should do and some things that we do in our lives. I want you to notice with me in verse number 6, and we've read these verses many, many times, but listen to what the Bible says about you and I. Listen to what we were. The phrasing is used, the Bible says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse 8, but God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And look at verse number 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Can I say that before you got introduced to the person of Jesus Christ, our Bible track that we use and uh, that has our name and our information on it has the title, What Does the Bible Say About You? Can I say we live in a world that doesn't care what the Bible says? And the average person walking down the street has no concern as to God's opinion of them. Uh, they tout their opinion of themselves, their opinion of, uh, of society, what society thinks they are and who society thinks they are, who their family thinks they are, who their friends think they are. But very few people in this world today are concerned with what God thinks about them. I think it's high time we get concerned with what God thinks about us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that you and I, before we met Jesus Christ, the Bible calls us sinners. Now, what does it mean to be a sinner? It means to be one that was sold into sin. It means that we were unrighteous both by nature and by action. It means that we were alienated from God. It means the characteristic of our life was that of sin. Can I say that sin and morality many times go hand in hand? There's plenty of people that are moral people that are sinful people. Morality is defined by the acceptability of society, whereas spirituality is defined by the uh, guidelines of God's Word. There's many uh, people in this world that claim to be moral people, and they say, well, I'm a good person, and they probably are. I mean, they're probably not going out killing people and stepping out on their spouse, and they're probably not going out and uh, stealing candy from a baby, although I'm told it's pretty easy. I don't know. I've never done it. But, uh, you know, uh, they're probably not going out and doing nefarious and heinous things with their life. But can I say that doesn't mean that it changes God's opinion of them. 
The Bible teaches that they're sinners, not because of what they do, but because of what they are. We're talking about what we were and what we are if we've not accepted Christ. Not what we do, but what we are. A sinner is a sinner because that's what he is by nature. He was born into sin. The Bible says we were sinners, but the Bible says that we were enemies. Enemies with God. Now stop and consider that. An enemy is a man that has a contrary and a mutually exclusive agenda from you. You have two uh, opposing foes that meet on the battlefield. And why are they there? They're there because they cannot abide one another's agendas. One of them has a desire for the destruction of the other. They are absolutely opposed and they are mutually exclusive one of the other. If they could work it out any other way, they wouldn't be, uh, be on the battlefield, but they can't. So there they are. That's your enemy. That's a person that you have no desire to have any fellowship with. And can I say that you and I, before Jesus Christ, we were the enemies of God. We had a contrary agenda to His. The natural man uh, is at enmity with God, meaning he is God's enemy. The natural man in the flesh has no desire to please God, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. And we do not walk by sight, but by faith if we've been born again. But the natural man cannot walk by faith. He must walk by, uh, by sight. That's all that he knows. And the natural man is the very enemy of God. Could I say that if you're going to get saved, God has a desire to destroy the natural man in your life? I'm not talking about the eradication of the flesh. But I'm saying that as long as the flesh runs you, you'll never seek a Savior. You have to come to a place where you see that your flesh is the enemy of God. And we use this terminology, and I believe it's appropriate. You side against yourself and with the Savior. That's what a lot of sinners are missing in this world. They don't understand. They want to keep themselves, but they want a Savior. But they don't understand that the very thing they need saving is from themselves and their sin. You can't keep both of them. A decision has to be made because they're enemies. They're contrary to God. Can I say, not only were we enemies, but look what the Bible says in verse number 6. I think this is precious language. You know, you can't magnify the grace of God without magnifying the depravity of man and vice versa. I mean, you can't talk about how good God is without talking about how bad we were. And so this is precious language to me because it shows the extent to which I was lost and the extent to which I've been saved when it says, for when we were yet without strength. We can take that terminology and we can make it mean a lot of things, but I think it means exactly what that King James Bible says. It means we were incapable of helping ourselves. It's that simple. Now you can call that total depravity if you wish, although I do believe that a man makes a decision to come to Christ. I don't believe he's foreordained or predestined to do so. I believe he makes a decision to come to Christ. I believe God's given us as free will agents the capacity to make that decision. But it doesn't change the fact that without God's convicting word, we'd never understand we had a need to. Or without strength, the sinner's hopeless without the word of God to be saved. Old Oliver Green used to, uh, and I'm reminded of him as I stand here with his Schofield Bible, he'd always say, turn in your Schofield Bibles. But Oliver Green, when he'd witness to a man, he'd ask him, do you believe this is the Word of God? And if that man said no, he'd turn around and walk away. He'd say, I can't help you. I can't help you. If you won't believe this book, I can't help you. Because the Bible says, for we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Say, why is that so important, preacher? Because the sinner's without strength in and of himself. He doesn't have the capacity to make himself aware of his need. Uh, he'll always, because you know why that is? Because he's the enemy of God. The flesh is the enemy of God. Let me ask you something. Do you get your intel? Do you take your battle strategy from the enemy? 
Do, do you take your strategies from the enemy or do you work them out amongst your own generals? The natural man is not going to take the advice of an almighty God because they're enemies one of another. It has to be a supernatural source. And that source is the word of God. If you don't care what the word of God says about you, there's no hope for you. And that's true not only of the sinner, but of the saint, too. If you have no concern for what the word of God says and teaches and preaches to you, then you have no no hope of ever coming closer to Christ. None whatsoever. You're without strength. And the natural man's always without strength, and he always will be without strength. So we find ourselves in this passage to be helpless and hopeless and heedless to the truths of God. So how did we get saved? I mean, how did that happen? If we have no strength, if we have no knowledge, if we have no wherewithal, if by nature we are not. I like this phrase. Look, here's another of what we were. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How did that happen? By the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, uh, we shall be saved by his life. We were reconciled to God. Do you know that whenever man was created, he was created in fellowship with God? He was not created justified, but he was created innocent. He was created with a fellowship with Almighty God. The Bible describes it to us using the language that he walked with Adam, the Lord did in the cool of the evening. And that's fellowship in its essential quality. Uh, there did not have to be a barrier of a priesthood. There did not have to be a barrier uh, of the law. Uh, but God merely walked with man in his innocence. Whenever sin entered the world and uh, man uh, by sin fell and died and fell into depravity and cast and pitched the whole of humanity into depravity along with him. Uh, when sin entered into the world and when the offense abounded, when that happened, fellowship was broken. Man had no capacity to speak with a holy God. And God set up a uh, law and set up a system of sacrifice whereby there could be some kind of means of communication. Some kind of means of fellowship, at least in some limited sense. But do you know that that still did not reconcile God to man, nor man to God? The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews that the Old Testament law was an incomplete way. It was a good way, but it was not the best way. Uh, it was not God's intention for the law to remain instituted. It was merely a temporary dispensational system until the fullness of, boy, I like that phrase in the book of Galatians. When the fullness of time, when God said it's enough, He sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. We were reconciled to an almighty God. I was thinking on the way uh, here tonight, and I, I was thinking about a priesthood, and I was thinking about the relationship that we have uh, to God. Do you know that the Bible commands us? Christ said that we're to not pray to Him, but to the Father. And you say, why does that matter, preacher? Because we do not pray to Christ, we pray through Christ. There's a difference. You see, uh, the, the Catholic adherent does not pray to God, he prays to his priest. And his priest prays to God for him. That's an incomplete relationship. But you and I, you see, we've not got an incomplete reconciliation. We do not pray to any priest. We pray through our great high priest. When God hears us, He hears the voice of His only begotten Son. When He hears us, it's not a second-class fellowship, but we're accepted in the Beloved. That's the kind of reconciliation that God's given us. We were reconciled. What happened after this? God gave us some things. I told you I was just going to hit on them. You don't want me to really preach them. You'll be here all night. Amen. 
You say, it already feels like I have. Look at verse number one. What are some things that we have? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, before the reconciliation through the person of Jesus Christ, before that happened, we were enemies. We had no peace with God. Uh, We could not speak to God. He was our enemy and we were his. But the Bible teaches that through Jesus Christ, there is a peace. What does it mean to have peace? It means a cessation of hostilities. But it goes even further than a cessation of hostilities. Uh, We talk about a peacetime in a nation. We're not at war. But can I say that the peace we have with God is more than just not being at war. Our peace with him is not a neutrality, but it is a relationship. It means that there is a cool and calm uh, peace within our souls through God and with God. It is an unshakable peace. There is no peace where there's constant anxiety. Do you know that? There is a fear, and I and I, I don't quote presidents often because most of them are terrible, amen. But uh, I will use this quote. It's so familiar to you. Uh, FDR was famous for saying, "What we have nothing to fear but what fear itself. And there is a terror in fear. There is a terror in the unknown. There is an anxiety in the unclear and the unproclaimed and the undeclared. But do you know that you and I, we have a peace which passeth all understanding it's better than just having understanding. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That word passeth is used several different times in your King James Bible. And it's used in several different ways. And one of the ways that it's used is as excellency, supreme, being greater and higher uh, than understanding. And the peace that we have with God, it's better than if we had it all figured out. Because we know that we have an almighty God seated upon his throne. And we know, hey, listen, even if we all had it figured out, we still might doubt that it would work out well. But the peace we have because we're our God, our Father, the relationship that we have with God that knits His heart to ours and our heart to His, uh, that eternal heart is seated upon the throne of heaven. That's a peace that's unshakable. The Bible says that the heathen rage in Psalms chapter number 2, but that the Lord is not moved out of His holy hill. It does not discomfort the Lord that this world rages. Can I say it should not discomfort the believer that this world rages. Nothing that bothers our Lord shouldn't bother us, and anything that doesn't bother Him shouldn't bother us either. Sin bothers our Lord. You know that ought to bother us? It ought to bother us. It bothers God when people sin. It offends God when people sin. It hurts God, and uh, it breaks His heart when people sin. And I'll tell you the problem with most Christians. I'll tell you why we have anemic Christians. The things that bother God don't bother us, and the things that don't bother Him do bother us. That's what's happened. I mean, the world gets in a dire strait. And I I understand it's a troubling thing, this world that we live in. I'd be lying if I said that it did not concern me. But can I say that I'm not looking for a politician to fix the problems of this world? I'm not looking for a president. I'm looking for a king to set up a kingdom and to fix this world. That's what I'm looking for. It doesn't bother me. I'm going to be carried out before it gets too awful bad anyway. Amen. We're not appointed under wrath. The book of 1 Thessalonians says, not appointed under wrath. It doesn't bother God that this world reels and rocks. He's got it under control. By the same token, my sin ought to bother me just as it bothers God. We have a peace with God. I want you to notice verse number 2. The Bible says, by whom also we have access. What a beautiful word. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We have access to God. You and I both. You don't have to get your access to God through me. We're part of this we crowd, both of us. 
if we've been born again by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God, if we've taken part in the new birth by faith and by grace, if we've done that, we have access to God. You don't have to come to me and pray to me. In fact, I'd prefer you didn't. I probably don't want to hear about it anyway. Amen. You don't have to come to me. You've got a relationship with God. You're part of this we crowd. By faith, we have access. It's interesting it is by faith. Look at verse number 11. I almost don't even want to preach it because I almost want to save it to the last, but I'm going to touch on it anyway. The Bible says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We have a fellowship and a relationship with Almighty God. Now, I think there's an important, this is the only time to my knowledge that the word atonement is used in the New Testament. There is a clear distinction between the Old Testament ideal of atonement and the New Testament ideal of propitiation. Uh, I understand that the word atonement has the idea of a covering. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word kafar used in the Old Testament dealing with the slime, the pitch that uh, that uh, was used to pitch the ark on the outside, both for Moses in the ark that went in the bulrushes and for Noah in the ark uh, that sealed out the judgment of God. And I, I understand the significance. I understand that propitiation has the idea of washing clean as snow. And I'm not going to spend all the theological time tonight it take to explain to you why that word atonement is used. But can I use a simple principle that we talk about a lot And can I say that when Christ sees us and when the Lord sees us, he sees the blood. That's what the word atonement means. It means a covering. And I understand it is absolutely inestimably better that God has taken away and washed our sins and our sins and iniquities. He'll remember no more. I understand that. But I'm thankful tonight that there's nothing that I can do to erase the blood of Jesus Christ in my heart and in my life. I'm thankful that, listen, I understand I can mess up my fellowship with God. I can't change my relationship, but I can mess up my fellowship. And I understand that tonight. I understand that I can affect my fellowship with an almighty God. But I'm thankful that all it takes is 1 John 1.10. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have that privilege. We have that privilege that's been given to us. Those are some things that we have. I want you to notice a couple of things that we shall be. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. You say, what's the significance of this verse? Is it saying that we're not saved? Well, let me say this. Let me say that everything in the Word of God has two aspects, a positional and a practical. We know this. We've talked about it many times. Sanctification has a positional truth. We are sanctified, the Word of God says. But I think it's clear that we don't always live quite so sanctified. Practically, there's coming a day when we will be sanctified, even though positionally when God sees us, we are now sanctified. We could say that about justification. We could say that about reconciliation and redemption. On and on we could go through the great doctrines of the Word of God. But could I say that salvation in its totality is true of this as well. We are saved right now. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've called on Him in repentance, I like that word repentance, I don't think it gets used enough, in repentance and called upon Him and asked for forgiveness of your sins, you are saved. He's made that promise to you. He'll save you if you'll do that. But can I say that in a sense, as He changes our life and sanctifies us effectually through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, we are being saved right now from sin in a sense. 
uh, I would hope that you're not always dealing with the same struggle of sin in your life all the time. Uh, now, I mean, there's no question there's some things that easily beset us. But hopefully you're gaining victory of those things in your life. And so in a sense you are saved and in a sense you're being saved. But do you know that the Bible says that Jesus Christ, for those that look for Him, will appear without sin unto salvation. There's coming a future day when that salvation will be completed in its totality. The Bible says two things will be saved from wrath. I believe that this deals with a twofold wrath that we could talk about. The word wrath is used, of course, concerning eternal damnation and punishment. And I'm thankful that even though we're promised the salvation and we're effectually saved right now, when the time comes that we do die, we're going to be saved from the wrath of eternal damnation and hellfire. But I believe there's another reason that word wrath is used, because the Bible says, and we've already talked about it in the book of First uh, Thessalonians, we're not appointed unto wrath. That wrath is dealing with the tribulation time. In the book of Revelation, a seven-year period of time in which the uh, persecution of the world will turn against uh, the Christian, uh, the anything to do with God, and it'll turn against the Jews. And we're not appointed to this wrath. We're not appointed to that difficulty and that trial and that tribulation. But look at verse number 10. Notice another thing will be. This same phrase is used again. It says in verse number 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You say, what is the significance of this twofold salvation? I believe that the first salvation speaks of the salvation of the soul, salvation from wrath. But I believe the second salvation speaks of the salvation of the body. The Bible teaches that our resurrection will be patterned after Christ's resurrection. We'll be resurrected because He was resurrected. In fact, the Bible speaks about the threefold resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ, about the uh, that Christ was the firstfruits. And then those that are His at His coming. And then cometh the end. You see, you and I, our resurrection body is going to be likened unto His. The Bible says, Paul said in the book of Philippians, that uh, this vile body shall be changed like unto His glorious body. Paul says that this corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. Why is that? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of His Life. The Bible says, for if Christ be not raised, then you're dead in your sins. If Christ be not raised, then the dead rise not. So our future resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And by the way, that's a blessed day coming, isn't it? Because you know what that means? That means a change taking place. That means the sickness will be no more. That means the pain and the sorrow will be no more. Our bodies will be changed. There's a future day coming. Let me give you three things and I'm done. Let me say a word about what we will do or what we do right now. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Can I say that the stand that's used here is not referring uh, to a deliberate or conscious action, but it has to do with our position in Jesus Christ. We stand in this grace, but what do we do? We stand, that's where we're at, what are we doing? And rejoice. I believe rejoicing is important. I mean, I believe it's minimized in churches today. I think the idea, and by the way, when I when I use the word rejoice, and that's a Bible word, I don't believe that has the idea of calm reservation either. 
And you say, preacher, I'm just not that type. You might be amazed what type you are if you turn your heart loose to God. I understand not everybody's the same, and I'm not saying everybody's going to jump as high as the next guy or cry as many tears or shout as loud. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm really saying this. Old Bob Jones Sr., you say, do everybody good to get in the glory just once. Just to prove to your flesh that you would, that'd be a good thing. The Bible says that we stand and we rejoice. That has the idea of a uh, proclamation of our joy of the Lord. We declare to others. Why? Because of this grace wherein we stand. I believe that praise is a natural function of the Christian. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. (laughs) It's interesting that it says say so. You know why it says say so? Because that's what God's done and that's what you are. It doesn't say you need to figure out something to say. You need to say what the so is. Amen. You need to say what God's done in your life. And I believe we need to be vocal about it, don't you? We stand and rejoice. Look at verse number 3. This is unusual to this world, contrary to the thinking of this world. The Bible says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. You're going to have tribulation in this world. That's what the Bible says. A lot of people have gotten into the ditch with their eschatology and with their prophetic teaching because John said that you have tribulation right now. Well, sure, we've got tribulation right now. That doesn't mean it's the great tribulation. I mean, sure, we've got tribulation right now. The Bible uh, says in the book of First Peter, this know uh, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold, though it be tried with fire. You and I, we're going to deal with tribulation. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing hath happened to you. If you're living for Christ, your flesh will be persecuted. It's that simple. If you're living for Christ, it will not be an easy road. Whoever told you it'd be easy when you got saved lied to you. The fact of the matter is salvation is uh, full and paid for. And I thank his holy name for that. But the second that you trust Christ as your savior, there's a bullseye on your back. Satan has a desire to stop you and to discourage you. You're doing something contrary to your nature when you accept Christ. And every moment that you live for him, you have to do it by grace. There is no time when the battle ceases and when the battle stops. I said the other day, and we preached on Sunday morning about the valley of grace and the war that we have to fight. And could I just give you a simple thought uh, that I believe you ought to take with you? The war has been won, but the battle still rages. There's still a fight to be fought. I understand that we can look at the end of the book. I understand that the bar, that the war is won. I, I thank His holy name that He giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ. But don't be deceived, beloved. There's a battle taking place right now for your life. For your life. But we glory in these. What does it mean to glory? I believe it means to rejoice. I believe it means to see God in your situation. That's what I believe it means when it says we glory. I believe it means to see God in it. I believe it means to see how it benefits God, your tribulation. And I believe it means to recognize that it benefits you, whether you can see it or not. See, the world doesn't know anything about that. You know that? It's contrary to the world. They don't understand that. Uh, To the world, when it's a bad time, it's a bad time. But for the Christian, even when it's a bad time, it's still a good time. Because you understand that God's on the throne and that He has a purpose even when you can't see it. You understand that all things are for your good and His glory. You may not understand it, but you recognize that God is getting good out of it. That it's bringing Him glory. We glory in tribulation. I want to give you one final thing. I believe this is important. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to joy? That's an interesting use of the word. Have you ever used the term joy as a verb? 
That's what the Bible uses there. We also joy. That's something we're doing. Can I say that happiness and joy sometimes is something we have to absolutely and consciously pursue? You know, there's times in our life when we don't feel like having joy. But we always have something to have joy about. You know what Christ said? Christ said, uh, these things have I spoken unto you that you may have joy. Your joy shall no man take. It's up to you whether you're satisfied with Jesus Christ. It's up to you. There's some people go through this life always wanting more because they can't recognize they've been given everything at Calvary. They can't recognize the goodness of God and the mercy and the grace of God. And they can't. Hey, listen, if them legs that you've got move, that's the grace of God. If those lungs pump breath, that's the grace of God. If your mind is able to string a thought together, that's the grace of God. And even if you haven't got any of those, if you ever did, that was the grace of God. We've got something to rejoice in. I mean, we've got something to be happy about. I've never seen a day when Christians were so miserable <laughs> being redeemed. I mean, I've never seen a day when Christians were so miserable with everything that God's given me. You say, preacher, you're beating up on me. No, I'm trying to encourage you and say there's something to rejoice in. Sometimes it's a decision we make. It's not always easy. Sometimes we have to make a decision to ignore the flesh. We have to make a decision to ignore the devil. We have to make a decision to ignore the world and its circumstances and joy in Jesus Christ. It's an active decision we have to make sometimes. You say, who has to make that? You do, and I do. We're included in this we. You may be here tonight and you may say, Preacher, I don't think I'm part of this we. I've never accepted Christ. I don't know what you're talking about. Can I say that tonight you can get in? You can get in on this we. <laughs> You can get in on this this uh, this fellowship. You can get in on this relationship with God. It's not about me. You can go your whole life without knowing me, and you're not going to miss much. Maybe a headache or two here and there, but you're not going to miss much. But if you don't get to know Him, you've missed everything. 